welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm your hoary host, Alex Grand. Today we have another David Armstrong interview, and uh, I'm proud to say that this one was a really fun one to edit and get it into podcast format. Now, David Armstrong, as we said in the last episode, is a friend of fandom, golden age comics historian, and he interviewed Julia Schwartz in 1999. Now, Julia Schwartz was an editor at DC Comics. He initially started his career as a science fiction pulp writer agent, working with people like H.P. Lovecraft and Alfred Bester. He then became an editor at All-American Comics, which was then subsumed by what eventually became DC Comics, and edited features like Hawkman, and eventually co-pioneered the Silver Age of DC Comics with characters like The Flash, Green Lantern, The Atom, and eventually The Justice League. He went on to edit the Superman titles and retired in the 80s. Luckily, in 1999, David Armstrong was able to sit him down on set and discuss his career. On a personal note, I write quite a bit about Schwartz in my upcoming book, Understanding Superhero Comic Books, soon to be published by McFarland Books and available to pre-order at McFarlandBooks.com. Make sure to get yourself a copy. So let's start with an anecdote by Schwartz on how he met Stan Lee, and then David will take us through it. Carmine gets invited to talk, and he finds out that Stan Lee was going to be on the same program. Stan Lee is going to be at the same Tom Steiner show. Carmine wasn't much of a talker those days, but he is now, I don't know. So he asked me to come on with him. So I came on the Tom Steiner show, and it's the first time we met Stan Lee. We were both editors of the Robert. We never met each other. And at the end of it, Stan Lee comes out to me and says, Julie, it was glad to meet you. I never thought I'd meet a fellow who could out-talk me. You did that tonight. Julie, you started in the comic book business in 1944. How did you get there? I got into comics, I guess, from the day I was born, I didn't know it. Well, let's be realistic. My getting into comics has its background in 1931, when I attended a meeting of a science fiction club called the Scienceers in the Bronx, and I met a fellow named Mort Weisinger, and he and I became fast friends. We hung out together. We did nothing but talk science fiction. Our interest in science fiction paid off professionally. Mort became an editor of a science fiction magazine called Thrilling Wonder Stories. That was about 1934 or 5. He and I started a literary agency prior to that, but he went off editing a science fiction magazine, and I kept up the literary agency. Who are some of your clients? Edmund Hamilton, mainly Wade Wellman, Otto Bender. I don't know if these names are familiar to you, but they're familiar to science fiction people. Now, Otto Binder is a familiar name in science fiction, but he's more familiar for doing comics work. He wrote over 500 Captain Marvel stories, for example. So I became an agent, and I was selling stories to Mort and other magazines. Mort decided to hold a contest to discover new writers. And the one who he discovered who would get top prize of $50 was a fellow he had never heard of called Alfred Bester. And Mort predicted Alfred Bester would become a great writer, and he wanted me to handle him. I was agent, tell him about the markets to be open, what kind of stories editors wanted. And Alfie and I, Alfie being Alfred, became fast friends, and we socialized a lot, mostly in his house. And one evening he said to me, Julie, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go down to an editor at All-American Comics. They need an editor who can plot and proofread and do things to a script that would make it presentable. So I said, don't send me down to a comic man. I've never read a comic book in my life. How am I going to talk about comics? He said, what you will do 
is buy some comic magazines, read them on the subway, and when you get to see this editor who would be Shelley Mayer, he would know and you would know what to talk about. So I bought three comic magazines. In those days, they were 10 cents. Three comic books for 30 cents. February 21st, 1944, those three comic books I bought for 30 cents was the only money I've ever spent in comics in my whole life, although I was involved for many, many years. I was interviewed by Shelley Mayer, who was the editor of All American Comics, who would shortly join up with DC Comics. They were like branch outfits. My job was to plot stories and edit them. I was not involved in the artwork. I neglected to mention that Alfred Bester, who I helped get started in science fiction, also did comics. And he was writing Green Lantern, what is called the Golden Age Green Lantern. So I was hired for the job February 21st, and the editor said, you must begin work immediately. So I began work shortly thereafter. Shelley Mayer left. I now had the responsibility of plotting stories, looking over the artwork, arranging for covers, doing proofreading to make sure everything would come out right. So that's what an editor does. When you first started, how long did you work with Shelley Mayer? I worked for Shelley Mayer, but only I worked for All-American Comics. Within a year, All-American Comics was sort of a branch for DC Comics combined. So we moved out of the office downtown and moved uptown to 480 Lexington Avenue. How well I remember that address. And that's where All-American was combined with DC Comics and became DC Comics. Were they both owned by the Donenfelds? Uh, Donafeld and uh, Max C. Keynes. Did you ever meet Keynes? Well, actually, he was theoretically my boss. Sally may have hired me, but Max Keynes never was involved in the comics. He was in on the business end. He was a partner, in a sense, with Harry Donafeld, who was running DC Comics. Let me tell you an interesting thing in connection with that. One day, Sally Mayer gets a newspaper strip that appears every day, and he got one about a character called Superman. It was done by a couple of kids named Siegel and Schuster. They'd failed to sell it to the newspaper syndicates. But Gaines was putting out a magazine that was reprinting syndicate material. So they got the idea, hey, maybe they'll take a new one, and maybe some newspaper will pick it up. So they sent it to All-American Comics. And Shelley Mayer was the one who saw it first. Well, he liked it. And he brought it into Max Gaines. He says, I think we can use this Superman character. And Gaines says, oh. now he says, wait a second. Harry Donifel, my partner, in a sense, is putting out a magazine called Action Comics. And he hasn't got a lead feature for it. Let's send up the Superman character. Maybe you go for it. So you see, Shelley Mayer was really the discoverer, in my opinion. This is a story I've heard, and I believe it. The discoverer of Superman going into Action Comics June 1938. And from then on, it's history. Super! Did you actually report to Shelley, or did he oh, give you a long string to do whatever no, you No, no, what I had, oh, I worked with Shelley. I only was involved in plotting the stories, editing them, and proofreading. I had nothing to do with the artwork. I knew nothing about the artwork. I still don't know anything about artwork. Well, in due time, Shelley left, and he says, Julie, you got to handle a magazine all by yourself. I said, but Shelley, I know nothing about artwork. He says, you listen to me. The youngsters who buy the comics, they don't know nothing about artwork. They don't know any more than you. When an artist brings an artwork, if it doesn't look right for you, you can't explain why. Maybe he looks too tall, his head is too small. Just tell him to change it. Don't tell him how, Tell him it doesn't look right. They think you know what you're talking about. Let them go back and do the artwork over. And that's how I got away with it. Did you ever sit on any other story conferences with Shelley Mayer? Because I talked to Erwin, and Erwin said Shelley used to be a real pain because he wouldn't put up with a lot of stuff. No, Shelley left the...
plotting and story editing entirely to me. Shelley looked at artwork. According to Erwin Hazen, who I believe you interviewed, when Shelley looked at the artwork, if he didn't like it, he threw it out of the office. Go pick it up. Shelley was quite a character. He was, in my opinion, if there ever should be an award ceremony, they have now have the Will Eisen Awards, they have the Jack Kirby Awards, they even have the Julie Awards. They should have a Shelley Award. I open this to any convention people listening. A Shelley Award would be the following thing. Shelley was a top-notch editor, he was a top-notch artist, and he was a top-notch writer. So I think a Shelley Award ought to be handed out every year for the top artist of the year, the top storyteller of the year, and the top editor of the year. And that should be the Shelley Award. When Shelley Mayer left, Whit Ellsworth became the editor of all the magazines. Now, Whit Ellsworth's name was listed as editor in all the magazines. Although I hardly had any conferences with him, he very seldom called me in. He trusted me to put out the magazine well, as good as I could, and I did. Now, at one point, Mort Weising and Jack Schiff and I, who were the main editors, went in and said, Whit, we'd like to get our names listed. So then, and at that point, Witt was going out to California to do the Superman television show. So that's how we became theoretically our own bosses and our own responsibilities. Did you sit down and have story conferences with your writer and your artist when you sat down to do a story? When the time came to do a Green Lantern story, for example, I would call in Alfred Bester, who continued with the magazine for another year, went on to bigger and better things. And Alfie and I would come down, we'd toss ideas around, and Alfie would go home and write it. He'd bring it back, and I'd edit it. If a correction had to be made, but not for Alfred Bester. <laughs> he, was, he was great. But Alfred Bester left within a year, and then I got some of my science fiction clients to go on. That was a fellow named Henry Cutner, and followed by John Broom. You were editing, and uh, and things changed at the end of the war. I mean, the public started to change in terms of who was buying it. Yes, about 1950, superheroes lost their favor. The only three that survived were Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. That was it. Consequently, we had to come up with new ideas. Let me ask you a question about the science fiction books in the 50s. You're really going back to science fiction? I like the science fiction. All right, go ahead. So do I. I got a stack of Strange Adventures and Mysteries face over there. That's all I pick up. I mean, you worked with guys like Cyberry and... Well, all right. I'll tell you what happened. In 1950s, I regularly recall, DC decided to put out a science fiction magazine. I was not originally involved in it. Until when they were putting on issue number one, they needed a story in a hurry because they got the rights to do a comic book version of A Destination Moon, which is based on a science fiction story written by Robert A. Heinlein. And they needed it done in a hurry. They were able to get a still from the movie and use it as a cover. They knew I worked with Gardner Fox, who was into science fiction, who was a fast writer, so I got out. In due time, I took over Strange Adventures altogether. During the 50s, I mean, you're doing science fiction and space travel and the space program and all that stuff were starting to become very popular. You started doing those stories before all that. Well, of course, but I'm basing it on the science fiction I read as a youngster. So I did Strange Adventures, and uh, a strange ha- thing happened on, on one particular issue. It was selling this average. One day, the editorial director, possibly Erwin Donnerfeld, came in and says, number issue eight, sold fantastically well. How come? I says, well, you know, it's got to be the cover. We dig up the cover. It takes place in a zoo, and we have a cage, and we have an audience outside looking inside the cage. Inside the cage is a gorilla, and he has in his hand a slate and a piece of chalk, and he's written on the slate. You see a pretty girl up front, so obviously designed it. Huh? I don't remember the exact words. In Murphy Anderson's honor, I'll say Helen, his wife. Dear Helen, Please help me. I'm the victim of a horrible scientific experiment. So the reader must say, God, what the... 
It turned out, of course, that he'd been a human being, and he was a human being who was acting like a gorilla. I said, that must be the theme. A gorilla with human-like characteristics. Put out another one. That was a success. We put out another one and another one. Until the other editors say, what's going on with Schwartz? He's putting out all these gorilla covers. So they started to put out gorilla covers. Until Irwin Donovan says, that's enough. At DC, no more than one gorilla cover a month. We don't want to saturate the market. There were a lot of gorilla covers on street. Now, that was a sheer accident. Showing again the importance of covers. Westerns were popular. We hoped Westerns would be. So we put out a series of Western magazines. And they were television shows. We adapted television shows. We did Bob Hope. We did Jackie Gleason. We did Martin and Lewis. And then there were cartoon shows. We put out magazines like Fox and the Crow and various other things like that. So that was from the early 50s. Oh, we put out romance thing. Imagine me doing a romance book. I, who is not in the least bit romantic, I happen to marry the most beautiful girl in the world, but that's beside the point. And how did those books sell in general? They sold all right. No world shakers, no world beaters. They just sold enough. And we were kind of concerned, where is the comic book business going to go? So we used to hold meetings to plot what our next move would be. And then I believe it was Erwin Donafield, who was our editorial director, came up with an idea of putting out a magazine called Showcase. When a magazine came out and put on display in the newsstands, it would be on display for one month or two months. We wouldn't know how a magazine did until four or five months later. Now, during that four or five month interval, we'd put out number two was already to be distributed. Number three, the artwork and stories were done. Number four was being plotted. Now come the results, issue number one didn't sell. If issue number one didn't sell, can measure the disaster is going to happen in two, three, four, or five. So we got the idea of putting out a magazine called Showcase. We put out a new idea, a new concept, or maybe an old one in a new form, put it out for one issue, and wait four months to see how it did. If it did lousy, terribly, unprofitable, forget about it. When the time came for Showcase number four, someone at the editorial meeting suggested, I don't know who, it might have been me, say, why don't we put out The Flash again? And most everybody objected. Why put out The Flash? It flopped in 1950. What makes you think it's going to succeed in 1955? So I pointed out, back in the 40s, youngsters began reading comics at the age of eight, approximately, and only read them for four years. After 12, they went on to other things. So I said, well, The Flash died in 1950. This is 1955. By the time the magazine comes out in 56, there'll be a whole new audience out there. They said, okay, that's a good idea. Who's going to edit The Flash? Everyone looked at me. I was the editor of The Flash. Now, I had a choice here. I could have continued Flash as it had appeared back in the 40s, or I could have done a variation, something different. The point is I had to put out a magazine called The Flash with a costume character who was speedy. And that's all I kept. Everything else I changed. For example, in the early days, the Flash gained superpowers because he was working in the laboratory and he dropped a beaker of hard water. My feet was it heavy? Ridiculous. He inhaled the fumes and became super fast. My new version of the Flash, working in a police laboratory, I believe, and a bolt of lightning came in from the window, hit the chemicals lined up and splashed over him. Now, mind you, a bolt of lightning travels at the speed of 186,000 miles a second. That would make him more believable. Well, he didn't realize he had the speed until he reached for a cup of coffee that was about to fall off the table, and he picked it up so fast, lightning speed. 
And he realized, with a little experimenting, he had super speed powers. He said, super speed powers, just like that flash I read in comic books when I was a kid. When I came up with that idea in the plotting, it started something that would go on for years and proved to be very profitable. What I imagined, eventually, that there was another Earth, a second Earth, where, where superheroes lived. So my superhero would live on this Earth, which I call Earth 1, and the other one, Earth 2. Well, that was wrong. Earth 2 should have been Earth 1 because that existed before Earth 1. So I did a whole series of stories eventually where the flash of Earth 1 met the flash of Earth 2. And to go even further, I had the flash of Earth 1 come into my Earth, which I called Earth Prime, where I was sitting at my desk editing a Flash comics, and this kid comes in, he has to use the cosmic treadmill to go back and pass, but that's a whole nother story. We did wonderful things with this whole concept. You understand that it was the genius up here who was thinking of all these things. The genius was a small G, I admit that. In terms of the way Showcase worked, you didn't know until two tryouts that it was actually doing. No. Put out Showcase 4, there was Showcase 5, 6, 7. By that time, the reports came in on Showcase 4. Woo! Did we hit upon something? It's the first one to be a success. So I immediately got to work and put out Showcase number 8. They decided to wait again. Finally, I think, I don't know the exact number. He had four issue tries. They said, okay, that's it. Let's put out the flesh in its own comics. It's a proven success. I go to work, put it out. Now we have a problem. I go into the editorial director. What number are we going to put on this? He says, well, we could put on number one, a new magazine. Number one issues always sell well, but not in this case. The editorial director pointed out, look, if our potential buyer goes to the newsstand and sees hundreds of magazines there, and he sees two magazines side by side, one says issue number one, one says issue 105, he's got that dime in his pocket. He wants to make sure he doesn't misspend it. Now, issue number one, who knows? Issue 105, that must be a great magazine. It's been going for 105 inches. That's the magazine I buy. Therefore, it started with 105. Not only the viewing public, but also the distributors who distribute the magazines would have the same thought in their mind. I don't know how distributors thought. First of all, I don't know whether they had a mind, and I don't mind whether they had a mind. So let's get away from distribution. And you left that up to everyone anyways. Erwin Donnerfeld, who, don't forget, is the, was the son of Harry Donnerfeld, who was the president of DC Comics. Once The Flash was a success, what did you do to follow up on that success? They asked me what I wanted to do next. I liked Green Lantern, especially Alfred Bester, who brought me into comics, was writing Green Lantern. And I sort of liked the character. But once again, I said, I'm making complete change. Nothing is going to be alike except the name. And to show how things are going to be different, while the Golden Age Green Lantern wore his power ring on the left hand, I'm going to put it on the right hand. So to make sure nothing is the same. The uniform was changed. The background was changed. The only thing I kept was was the oath that Alfred Bester created, which is not the original oath. The oath that Alfred Bester created was, in brightest day and blackest night, no evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power, green lantern's light. And I remember that so well, I still love to say it. And Alfred Bester was the wonderful guy. I wish I could talk more about Alfred Besson than anything else we're talking about. Well, it's interesting. You know, when you were doing the new superheroes in the Silver Age, the new origins that you put for these heroes came out of science fiction backgrounds. Exactly. You had a, a lot of background in science fiction. You made sure that the writers that you really liked and knew and could work with 
were involved with those. With yes, they were very well acquainted with science fiction. Did yes. John Broom do a lot of those? John Broom was one of my clients. I sold a number of his science fiction stories, and it was a very successful team-up. To show you how successful it was, it eventually led to him becoming my best writer, my best friend, and best man at my wedding. And I'm very thankful that I came to the San Diego Comic-Con last year, that's 1998, because John was brought in from overseas along with his wife, and I hadn't seen him in many years. And unfortunately, he passed away a few months after that. So I'm very thankful I came out to San Diego Comic-Con. So Green Lantern was a success. They say, okay, what do you want to do now? Well, I said, I like that Justice Society of America. I liked all those superheroes doing together. i like to do that again. However, I said, I hate the word society. It sounds like a social club. I want to use a better word, league. Baseball leagues, football leagues, youngsters identify with leagues, societies they know from nothing. So I changed it from Justice Society of America to Justice League of America. And when that came out, boom, 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 rocketed into space. I mean, I always liked Adam Strange because he was one of the few guys that didn't have superpowers. Well, he was the thinking man superhero. He'd always get involved in a situation on another planet where his enemy had super scientific abilities and powers more than he had. But with his brains, he used his brains to think his way out of it. And of course, the Adam Strange stories, for those who don't know, it simply dealt with a beam coming from another planet, which was originally designed to be a means of communication, teleported Adam Strange from Earth to this other planet. And he's always got confronted by villains of super scientific abilities. But with his brains, he always thought of a way out. And he fell in love with a girl on a planet called Alana. And before anything could happen, he'd fade away and go back to Earth. So he always had to make up his mind. He'd have to go back to the planet Ron, except he had one difficulty. He had to be where that Zeta beam from this planet Ron would strike Earth. And unfortunately, the planet Ron could not be seen from the Northern Hemisphere. He had to go down south, below the equator, to get to that one spot at the exact time when the beam was strike. For example, one time he had to go down to Rio where they had the carnival. He had to be on a float because he knew the beam. On another time, he had to be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. And of course, eventually, he get there and he fell in love with this girl and he always had to come back to Earth. That you started in the science fiction business as a fan. Yes. You were part of Time Travels. What's Time Travel? Time Travel was a fan magazine we pulled out. Mort Weising and I started the first science fiction fan magazine, January 1932, called The Time Traveler. Fast forward. In the letter columns, you started printing addresses and getting fans together. Ah, oh, now we got things that takes the whole hour, but I'll, I'll make it short. Okay. Mort and I became acquainted because in the science fiction magazines, they printed letters, and the letters included the addresses of people. So if people lived in the same town, we got together to talk to somebody. Now, when I did my letter columns in the comic books, I wasn't allowed to put in the addresses for a reason I don't know or don't want to get into. But at one point, I think I did it in one of the Hawkman revivals in Brave and Bold. I said, I'm going to put in the addresses. And by putting in the addresses, fans started to correspond. A fellow named Jerry Bales got in touch with Roy Thomas. They put out a fan magazine called Old Eagle. So finally, all the fan magazines started. And all these conventions all started. So because Mort and I achieved our measure of fame because of the science fiction letters department that I felt I should do the same. Not that I knew it was going to happen. I tried to get comic book fans together and sure enough it led. And the final payoff, you know what the final payoff is? Here I am in this room doing this thing all because I put the address in the magazine. 
When I took over Batman in 1964, in the years prior to that, Batman was not like he was treated in days of old. He was hardly battling villains. He was going back into the past. It was almost like horror science fiction concepts. I said, let's bring Batman back to tradition. I'm going to bring back the original villains. I brought back or reintroduced the Riddler, the Joker, Catwoman, the Penguin. Well, William Dozier, who was a producer at 20th Century Fox, happened to pick up a Batman comic. I read this. Batman had to make a great idea for a television series. Let's get in touch with DC Comics. It worked out. Because I brought back those villains, and it happened that Dozier read the issues I brought back with the villains, that gave them the idea of putting out the Batman television series. The first few television series were based on stories I did in the, in the comics. Naturally, as they went on, they created their own villains, way out criminals, but they had a great time. It was a big success, except after the first year, the series started to fade. So Doja came over to us. We'd like to introduce a feminine interest into the series. That might be interesting. So in talk, I said, I don't know if I said, no one remembers the details. But he said, how about putting out a Batgirl? They said, great idea. Have a story written immediately. I called in Gardner Fox. We plotted a story called The Million Dollar Debut of Batgirl. I called in Carmine Infantino to design a cover and a costume and a motorcycle charade. Carmine did all those things. They loved the idea, and that's how Batgirl got introduced to that uh, series. Incidentally, by my reviving successfully those superheroes, I saved DC Comics because DC Comics was fading away. So my boss, at this time Jack Lee was president of DC Comics, would go out and play golf with Martin Goodman. Now Martin Goodman happened to be the president of Marvel Comics. The two presidents are playing together. So Jack Lee was for very good and kept boasting to Martin Goodman, hey, we have a big hit in our hands. We have a magazine that's topping the charts. So Martin Goodman said, really, what magazine is that? I wasn't there to this, but this is a story that came out of it. He said it was the Justice League of America. What is different about the Justice League of America? Well, the editor got the idea, instead of having a magazine with one superhero, he'd have a number of superheroes in one magazine working together. And evidently, the buyers out there like that idea because they're buying it hot off the newsstand. So what happens? Martin Goodman goes back to his editor, someone named Stan, 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 Oh, Stan Lee. I couldn't think of the name, by the way. And he told Stan Lee, put out a comic book with superheroes working together. And Stan Lee, the name of the guy, puts out a magazine called The Fantastic Four, and he puts on top the world's greatest comics magazine. It proved to be a big hit and got Marvel going on the way. So in a sense, I not only saved DC Comics, I saved Marvel Comics too. So here I was editing magazines. Which means what? What does an editor do? An editor is like the general of an army. He lays out a plan for the army being victorious over the enemy. In my case, I had to lay out a plan for me being victorious over the public out there. I had to get them to spend 10 cents to buy that magazine. Now, he's not going to indiscriminately put out 10 cents. We're talking 1944. 10 cents was a lot of money. It only cost two cents to mail a letter or buy a newspaper. You buy a penny's worth of candy. 10 cents was a lot of money. So if he saw literally hundreds of magazines, what would persuade him to pick out this magazine instead of that magazine? The first thing a potential buyer sees is the cover. If I can attract them by that cover, my cover, as contrasted to a hundred other covers. So naturally, I had to make sure I had an interesting cover. Originally, in the early days, the artwork would be completed, and then the editor would look through the various pages of the artwork and say, hmm, this might make a good scene. Another this, and then once in a while, there's nothing that would make a good scene. 
So in due time, we said, why don't we wake in reverse? Instead of having the artwork done and then the cover, let's do the cover and then do the artwork. So I'd call in some artists. Murphy Innocent would be one. Carmine Infantino would be one. Gil Kane would be one. And we sit down. And I say, we didn't sit down. We paced back and forth. We would not do this all together. Murphy would come in by himself. Carmine Infantino would come in by himself. And eventually we'd sketch out something, a provocative situation. And we say, that's it. Let's do it. And when that's done, we're going to force the reader to buy that magazine. And one of the prime examples I gave was something I worked out with Carmine Infantino. We show a close-up of the flash, holding his hand up toward the reader like a traffic cop. The hand would be exaggerated, poking the reader in the face. All you see is the flash and that big hand. The lettering in the balloon would say in big lettering, Stop! Don't pass this magazine by. My life depends on it. Hopefully a reader would say, wow, wow, I've got to buy this magazine. I can't let the flash die. That would buy him out. That would be a typical flash cover. In Batman, we do something a little different. Batman was known for always being involved in the trap. Ever saw the Batman television show? It was a two-parter. Part one always ended with Batman in an involved trap. How could he possibly get, to get out? We knew he could get out. So I evolved with the help of an artist of a trap. I just had, in one case, a water tank. Water was flowing in from above, and Batman was in the water, his hands handcuffed behind him, and he was keeping his head above water so he could breathe. And the water kept going higher and higher, and you knew Batman's going to get higher and higher, until you looked up at the top of the cover, and you saw two machine gun bullets on either end of the tank shooting bullets back and forth. So Batman had a choice. Do I go down and drown, or shall I be a hero, stick my head up, and can be shot to death? That's what the reader had to buy that cover. How did Batman get out of that trap? I'm not going to tell any of these people. Go back to 1966 or 7, buy it for yourself. No, seriously, what he did, he realized for water to go in, it eventually has to come out. So he found a little thing he had to tighten it down and get out. That, that's beside the point. So, as you see, an editor has to conquer the enemy. The potential buyer is that enemy. I have to capture him and get him to part with 10 cents. Eventually, times were getting tough. To put out a magazine, we couldn't do it for a dime anymore. So we had an editorial in the magazine explaining because of the rising cost of paper and everything else and economic conditions, we were forced to raise the price of the magazine from 10 cents to 12 cents. That two cents was a lot of money back. And then soon enough, we had to go to 15 cents, 25 cents, 50 cents, 75 cents, a dollar. Many magazines are selling for a dollar 95, some for 2.95. Bigger ones are going for 4.95. See how things involve. You, Julie Schwartz, used to handle all these artists when you didn't know that much about artwork and you had to get them to do the stories you wanted. You obviously had a good relationship with John Broom and... and well, John Broom was a writer. And Gardner Fox. Gardner Fox was a writer. You knew all the writers. I knew him because... You brought him into the business. No, I didn't bring Gardner Fox. Gardner Fox was there uh, years before I was. So you never had any trouble with any of your writers? Or did you? What do you mean by trouble? Sure, I had plenty of trouble. i give you an instance of a terrible trouble I had. Gardner Fox would come in about 10 o'clock. i said, Gardner, come in Monday. We're planning a story at 10 o'clock. So Gardner would come in at 10 o'clock. Uh, let's assume we were doing a Batman story, for example. I'd have the cover. Or if we didn't have the cover, we'd have to work from an idea. And we work it out. We pace back and forth. And we had to get Batman in the trap, because those are the days I was emphasizing trap. Now we had Batman in the great trap. We had everything done, except how do we get Batman out of that trap? 
and we couldn't come up with the answer. I said, God, it's, it's, it's 12 o'clock. Let's go out to lunch. When we go out to lunch, our minds will work on it subconsciously. When we come back, maybe we'll be lucky and come up with an answer. So I got to lunch with Gardner Fox. We have a nice meal. We go back to the office. I said, Gardner, I have the answer how Batman gets out of the trap. Now, what Gardner didn't know was I had the answer all along. But I figured if we go out to lunch, Gardner's going to pick up the check. <laughs> and that's the kind of guy I am. I haven't, I haven't changed a bit, have I? I've tried to stick my few. <laughs> Maud Weisinger, my long, lifelong friend who I mentioned before, was editor of Superman from 1941 to 1970. And he went every year in the late 60s to Jack Leibowitz, who was running the office. Jack, I want to leave comics. I want to do some fiction writing. So he said, no, no, Maud, Maud, you can't leave. Here's another $1,000 salary or whatever he was paying him. And every year that would go on. So finally in 1970, Maud went in and said, Jack, this time I, re I really want to leave. And Jack Leibowitz said, well, fine, because I'm leaving too. Now the question is, who's going to edit Superman? So Mort says, I don't know if this is true, but I'm if knowing Mort, lifelong friends. Listen, Julie did well doing Batman, Flash, everything. Let him do Superman. So Mort comes in, or other people, and says, we want you to, and I didn't want to do Superman, and I, I hardly read it, didn't know enough about him. But they insisted and insisted, so I became the editor of the Superman in 1971. And it turned out to be a lucky break because I think I did very well with it. I wanted to make changes. I thought he'd been in the Daily Planet too often. And the youngsters weren't reading, getting their news from newspapers. They were getting out of television. So I said, instead of keeping him as a reporter on the Daily Planet, let's not make him a, report, a television reporter, go out and get stories. And I did a number of stories like that. Because shortly I took over Superman, came into a movie. So I told Mario Putzer that. So the first screenplay, Clark Kent was a television reporter. The script is written, and Ilya looks at the script. What is this? Clark Kent is a television reporter? That's not the way I, I, I know about it. He says, let's have a man on the street interview where they go out to a number of people, ask 100 people, who is Clark Kent? And they ask mostly adults, because those are the ones that we're going to watch the movie. 100 people were asked more or less who was Clark Kent, and everyone said he's a reporter on the Daily Planet. So much goes from my, well, don't forget, youngsters are reading. So the script had to be rewritten. And that is the version, of course, that you saw with the Christopher Reeve. He went back to being a reporter on the Daily Planet. Do you find that there were certain artists that were really strong cover artists that could uh, put together a really good Yeah, Carmine Infantino was no, no doubt the, the mind pin, one of the best. But there were others. There was Murphy Anderson, there was Gil Kane, it was Mike Sikowski. The other artists were very good. But Carmine, I believe, came out with the majority of the covers. So I, I really don't want to single out anyone. Today, unfortunately, I don't think covers play that big a part. I have a feeling that many comic book buyers buy a comic with no particular interest. It's not the magnet that drew them to it. Why? Because all too often today, when they go to buy the new Batman that came out, or the new Superman, it's a continuation of a story that happened the month before. So they're going to pick up this issue anyway, regardless of what's on the cover. I must tell you my opinion. I hope no one at DC gets mad at me. But if I'm a new reader for a comic, and I see on the cover says, part four of a six-part story, why am I going to pick up that magazine? Part four? And if I do pick it up, all of a sudden I find that part five isn't another magazine altogether. Now... 
as I say, this is my opinion, but it may not necessarily be true. If you're hooked on a magazine, evidently the potential buyer will go out and buy it regardless of where it is. But if that's the way the market is, good. I'm not going to criticize that at all. All right, let me get the hell out of here. <laughs>